0: You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. Before Walker Percy became famous as the author of novels like The Moviegoer and Love in the Ruins, he wrote a series of philosophical essays on the relationships between language, symbol, and human nature. Unknown to most readers, he'd assembled those essays into a coherent philosophical volume, but after more than a decade trying to get it published, he gave up on it and turned mostly to writing fiction. In the intervening half-century, some of those essays were published in other forms in his collections, The Message in the Bottle and Signposts in a Strange Land, but now, thanks to the work of editors, the whole volume is appearing complete for the first time. It's called Symbol and Existence, a Study in Meaning, and it's out now from Mercer University Press. I'm delighted it's brought the editors here to Human Christian Humanist Profiles. I think this is the largest group of interviewees we've ever had on this show, so let me take a deep breath and introduce you one by one. Kenneth Lane Kettner is the P.W. Horn professor and director of the Institute for Studies in Pragmaticism at Texas Tech. How you doing, Ken?
1: Pretty good. Uh, things are hot down here in Lubbock, Texas. I, I bet. I bet they're usually pretty hot.
0: Uh, Carrie Perkins is a professor of English at South
2: Carolina State University. How are you, Carrie? Pretty good. It's hot down here in, you know, the low country of South Carolina, too.
0: Rhonda Renee McDonald is a professor of American Literature and Composition at Northern Virginia Community College. How are you, Rhonda?
3: I'm doing well, Michael. Nice to be here with you.
0: That might be the only place represented today that's not hot.
3: Well, it's it not too hot. Bad. well, not to me. I'm originally from Arizona, and a friend of mine posted something on Facebook that showed a temperature of 108 and said, I think fall is finally coming. Oh and they gosh. weren't being ironic. Oh my gosh.
0: I, I couldn't
3: Fall <laughs> so, in Virginia. Uh, and the fourth editor who
0: is not joining us today is Scott Cunningham, who is the Assistant Director for Research Operations. Thank you uh, for coming on the show. Uh, hopefully, hopefully we'll have some interesting things to say about this, uh, this very interesting book. But, but Before we get to the, this particular book, I think it might be worthwhile to go over the story of how Percy became interested in philosophy and particularly in existentialism in the first place. Would one of you mind telling his convalescent
3: conversion story? Harry, you're a good one for that, I think.
2: How he became interested in existentialism. Um, I I think he was always sort of existentialist, and his uh, father died when he was 11, and his mother died when he was 13, and I think uh, the death of two parents might make one pretty existentialist. Um, and he came from a good Southern aristocratic background where he was expected to be a doctor or a lawyer. Uh, and so he, um, or a lawyer or some other profession like that. And so he became a doctor. Uh, He went to University of North Carolina Chapel Hill undergraduate and then Columbia University and uh, got his medical degree, and while he was in residency, he contracted tuberculosis. And at that time, it it there was no cure. There was um, basically it was the rest cure, and so he went into uh, the New York mountains where the air was clear, and they had a place for tuberculosis patients. And he for two years and read for two years. He read a lot before his uncle William Alexander Percy was an author and a and knew all the famous authors in the South. Um, and he sort of had a sea change internally, uh, whereas uh, before he had been a scientist. And a, a real believer in scientists, scientism, well, science. He then uh, started to think about life and death and the meaning of life and what it is to be a human. I'm sure he thought about it before. But he just realized at this point, I think, that uh, science doesn't provide all the answers. There is something more. Um And uh, I think that's when his his nascent existentialism became full blown. Um, Rhonda, Ken, what do you think? You wanna correct anything or add to that brief summary?
1: Well, this is Kettner and I'm uh, surrendering to our editorial moderator, Rhonda. So I will let her direct the traffic.
3: Well, I think uh, that summed it up really nicely, Carrie. I had directed, kind of tossed the question in your direction because I remembered um, back in the days when we were both working on PhDs on Percy that that you had had really delved into the existentialist side of things. Um, I remember you you used to keep up a website that had fantastic notes and and that sort of thing. So so I think you captured it pretty well. You know, he he'd always had this. These kinds of, of yearnings, but um, was trying to put it all together in some sort of way to figure out um, what it meant to to live one's life and and how to how to get through Wednesday afternoon. I mean, that was always his his concern. How do you get through Wednesday afternoon without blowing your brains out? And and so he started to to search for. Real answers when he was um, confronted with with the possibility of of death by disease rather than by one's own hand,
2: I think. And I think Rhonda's mentioning suicide because his father committed suicide, and his father's father committed suicide as well. Isn't that correct? Yes. Uh, his
0: mother may have committed suicide, right? some people some why? people believe that her car accident was purposeful
2: right
3: right and he was uh, you know his his greatest um struggle i think philosophically really was was getting past that southern stoicism Mm -hmm. where if one's honor was in some way seemed besmirched or or if one couldn't find a way to to exist um in a way that lived up to to some sort of Marcus Aurelian standard of of honor and dignity and pride, um, then it might be best to fall on one's sword. Or lacking a sword, uh, a shotgun seemed to work pretty well. And ne- we see- Never has
0: a death from colon cancer seemed like such a victory because it, it, it meant that he, he made it 70 years, 70-odd 70 years, without killing himself. And also that the tuberculosis he contracted didn't kill him.
2: It was prostate cancer, and he always Excuse thought he—that's okay, yeah. close enough, same area, and, <laughs> and 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 he thought that tuberculosis would take him or suicide. He he wrote a lot about it. The second coming, we see it a lot, mm-hmm. and Rhonda mentioned stoicism. We see that in in the aunt Binks's aunt in uh, the moviegoer. Um, and, and and William Alexander Percy kind of imparted that Stoic ethic to oh, him in, as well.
3: Incredibly, I've been rereading *Lanterns on the Levy* um, just this past just this past week or so, and and um, that that sort of under under lying life philosophy is just you know and everything that that Will Percy. Um, understood about the world and and it didn't it didn't fit for for walker's personal nature i think um and that and that he had that um he had a little bit of that suicidal impulse Mm -hmm. i suppose um he he talked in his in his letters and such too especially to shelby Foote about about um, battling some depression and, and trying to deal with that he didn't use the word depression exactly but he would he would talk about being low and having a difficult time with things sometimes and um and that stoicism did not give him a way out of out of that impulse you know and so then we go back to, to um, particularly Christian existentialism um, back to Marcel and kierkegaard and and um, thinkers of that sort and And he starts to to find a way um to approach God. and he and he kind of married that to Catholicism, I think. and and um, found that to be a helpful way to start to deal with his own demons, I guess and the
0: essays that make up this collection or i don't know if you want to think about it as a collection or as a unified book i think it's kind of somewhere in between from from the way i read it but they they really find him at the center of all these different perspectives on the world trying to figure out which way to move forward because the stuff that he grew up with and the stuff he kind of adopted during college have begun to fail him and you can you can see him um at that crossroads in in these uh these essays Or at least I can.
1: Well, I would like to put in a a word about this. Uh, I don't think the book uh, is a collection.
0: Okay.
1: Collections came out of it,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: but it was the basis from which, uh, well, it was was a basically, a basic book, uh, which I think is extremely important for understanding Percy and his writings. Uh, it must have been very difficult for him to write that book. He wrote it during the 50s, and he put a whole lot of effort into it. He went through four different graphs. Part of our trouble, problem was um, trying to decide what might be the, the from his perspective, the best draft. And I think we did solve that problem. Uh, But this, this book shows Percy on the inside and what he's trying to do within himself. But it also shows that he thinks he's found something important, which he wants to share with other people and he's he's very blunt about it. He opens up by saying, this book is, it's a striking sentence, this book is the record of something like this. This book is the record of a struggle within one person between two worldviews, or words to that effect. Well, he's coming out of science. He makes it clear he's been a scientist. Uh, he's a very good scientist not just of one particular discipline, but of several disciplines. During the 50s, he's learning how to be a novelist. He tries two novels. They're duds. They don't work, or at least he thought they didn't. And he has a, a, a very good teacher uh, at the time to help him develop as a novelist. Well, if you read this business about science that he's struggling with, you have to be careful that, that you understand which sense of the word he's struggling with. He's not struggling with science as the struggle for truth. He's struggling with what he thinks is science misused. He wants to distinguish them between science that's good and does its own thing in a proper way, and science that's bad and not good for you and not good for other people, and he calls that scientism, and he describes it as science raised to an all-encompassing worldview. So it's not right to say that he's anti-science or he leaves behind science. He wants to get rid of the bad science in his personal struggle to gain uh, what. Carrie and Rhonda uh, were talking about is his inner peace that he's looking for. He wants that that science, that good science, to to have what it needs to have and deserves to have, but he wants that missing part to be found and linked up properly. Now, for me, that was that was quite a, uh, uh, a good experience, an educational experience. Track watch him do that in this book.
0: I, I found that really striking about the book too, Ken. That he he sets up these kind of opposing forces. You have on the one hand, uh, kind of objective observation, and on the other hand, you have the the kind of phenomenological approach that would become existentialism. And when I saw he set that up, I expected him to to essentially abandon that first one and accept the second, but he doesn't. What he wants to do is use the second one, the, the kind of phenomenology to improve the first one. So he wants a, a kind of empirical science that has taken stock of phenomenology. Is that, is that an accurate
1: statement? Well, well uh, I think you might want to get the experts, uh, Carrie and Rhonda to talk about what Percy calls radical anthropology.
2: So, Percy sees that there's truths in in science and the scientific method, not scientism, which Ken said is science elevated to an all-encompassing worldview, which takes a purely behavioristic view of everything, positivism, which says if you can't Perform a scientific experiment on it, it has no meaning, uh, or if you can't observe it um, and but the scientific method is what Percy wants to retain, but he also sees truths in existentialism, but his problem with existentialism is that it wasn't objective, it was too subjective, but science Itself, the objective science didn't account for the nature of human beings. The questions that we ask are our yearnings, are um, what it is to be a human. Who am I and what am I here for? Um, and so he wants to resolve this dichotomy. And, and for him, he... Sees a resolution in semiotic, well, and particularly in language, and so um, he sees that he can sort of have. And, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, an objective existentialism, you know, uh, and it's um, uh, and, so, and I actually. I think he says sort of his thesis here – well, there's so many theses, I can't – so many sentences that he says that says it so well. Um, uh, He says, a radical anthropology, and this is what he's coming up with, must treat as its primary datum, data, datum, not man as a responding organism, that is, scientism, Though that's a legitimate science when applied to um, physics and other things, not human beings, uh, or the physical side of human beings, it's legitimate. Though this treatment, he says, is a legitimate science, but man as an organism who makes assertions, who makes a society and a culture possible, scientism can't account for that. Why do we do that? It can't account for things human beings do like uh, uh, religion, culture, language, um, and symbolism. so he symbolism, right? Um, and so he's um, so so he's trying to come up with this radical anthropology, and for him, language is somehow the key. And he bases that in Charles Sanders' Peirce's semiotics, or semiotic, uh, as Peirce referred to it. Um,
3: Semiotic?
2: Semiotic. Is it? (laughs) How do you pronounce it? Kendo's.
3: Semiotic.
1: That's right. Semiotic. Semiotic.
3: Which is different, and, and that needs to be understood as something different from what um, you might think of as being semiotics, um, the way you might get from um... Morris. Uh, yeah. Thank uh, you. So I, was, I, I yeah. drew a little blank right there. I was I was thinking of the French school. Yeah, I was um, so sore.
2: And... Thank you. And so sore, and so sore that yeah, so... have a dyadic and so
3: that, yeah, that becomes his problem right is and it's the same problem that he had with um the way objective science was being practiced that everything was was set up as binary as as and as being cause effect relationships and as being very dyadic um c s Peirce would have classified it and and when he's talking about man as a symbol making organism, then he's talking about. Um, something triadic. Um, In other words, that there is a a feature beyond, an extra piece to it that's essential to it, um, to the communication. It cannot be separated from it, and it's very different than when one of my dogs sees a neighborhood dog they've decided that they hate, and starts barking, looking out the window at it, and then the other two dogs run for the window because the bark says enemy outside. Mm-hmm. And that's very cause effect. They don't get together then and talk about why they don't like the neighbor dog. I don't you know, that's that's at that other level, and I don't I don't see in them that they do that. They're they're smart dogs, but they're not they're not that smart. You know, and that's what that's what Percy would say. I mean, that's one of his examples he uses has to do with dogs.
2: You know, he talks about that. So the dyadic relationships or dyadic understanding is cause effect. And looking at the world dyadically just evaluates human beings as cause effect creatures. Well, we're we're much more than cause effect. Um and that's why um Culture, religion, language—these th- aren't cause-effect activities, although Searle and Morris would like to reduce it to cause-effect. Um, uh, Percy says they're triadic, and that has to do with relationship.
3: Yeah, and that, that the relationship is there, and and that when someone takes meaning from another person, that there's an intersubjectivity there,
2: right? Which is which is tetradic. Once you get, the, uh, he gives uh, up. On the, yeah. Well,
3: he gives up on the tetrads and realizes that that it's two triads that have hooked up correctly. I, I, he realizes that, but it's late. He doesn't get there until he thinks the delta factor, which he writes late um, after this book. So he, the point even though I can, there's pieces of the delta factor book. that come from this, right? Um Delta factor was written separate from this. It wasn't pulled from this. okay. It was one of the few um, completely unique pieces to message in the bottle. Okay. but um I think I think people are starting to beginning to understand how important first um, and and then also um, people like Kasir were to to Percy's understanding of the world and and the way he put together his. Radical anthropology um, are now just starting to to really understand that um, the existentialism is is I find it to be a very small part mm-hmm. actually for Percy. Um, it's gotten entirely in my opinion. Um, and I don't want to to offend any any um, Percy scholar out there. Um, but I think the existentialism's gotten gotten a bit too much mm-hmm. credit
0: and notice. I think the Kierkegaard. Piece is way overblown. I think yeah. I think oh. Gabriel Marcel is way more oh, important absolutely. to him than Kierkegaard. But but then also the way he's using Marcel, you mentioned intersubjectivity. That's a Marcelian term. But he doesn't well, I, when he talks about intersubjectivity, he's not talking about it the way Marcel talks about it. He he really has turned it into something more like a science, which makes sense. I mean, the guy the guy's a scientist, so right? Well, and that's he's, yeah,
3: that's what he's trying to formulate. Right? Is is a <laughs> When he talks radical anthropology he's talking about about doing science in a new way um, when it comes to to humanity right and and sciencing in a new way and and so the you know so much of the groundwork of how how he approached the world intellectually is is in this book is in symbol and existence absolutely and he he tweaks it from that point on but but all I think my my opinion, and and Ken, Carrie, you got, you all can contradict me, but I think um, all of the basic planks that that his um, thought and worldview is built on, all of
2: those are laid
3: in this book.
2: I I think that he it, looking at his novels, just his novels, he's much more existentialist in his early novels. Look at the moviegoer. Mm-hmm. And then as he gets to Lancelot, I mean, he's always got that underlying existentialism. But the semiotics, which is the answer to the question of existentialism, starts to uh, become dominant. Now, and, and so does his interest in Charles Sanders Peirce. Um and so he's always interested in Purse, and he's using Purse somewhat in *Symbol and Existence*. Um, but by the end of his career, he he actually puts a quote from Purse in uh, his last novel. He actually puts Purse in here, um, and he says, page 68 of *Thanatos Syndrome*. He says. The great American philosopher Charles Sanders Peirce said the most amazing thing about the universe is that apparently disconnected events are in fact not that one can connect them amazing. And so he's talking about uh, Peirce's idea of triads as opposed to dyadic. Right. Concrete. And the universe right.
3: being built on a web of relations.
2: Right. Yeah. And so... And so his I think he he kind of can his and he also said later in his life that he was going to, you know, write Message in the Bottle 2 or the sequel to Message in the Bottle. He called it various things. Um, and it it was going to really feature Charles Sanders purse prominently. Um, so I think he becomes. You know, as Rhonda's saying, the existentialism and Kierkegaard and all of that, and as as you said, Michael, uh, it's there, uh, but there's been a lot written on it, and there's a lot more going on, and this other going on becomes much more prominent, especially later in his uh, career. The, the
3: existentialism came easy, too. I want to say I think it came easy to him in comparison, Mm -hmm. whereas whereas we see a very long um, engagement process with purse, you know, where um, he I think he didn't he'd clearly or it became clear to us while we were editing this this book. And we talked about it somewhere. We could see that he definitely had already um, encountered and was and was making some use of purse. sort of in the background um, with symbol in existence um, that it was already there but then he he really focuses a lot on purse um, while he's doing the um, working on that project with the National Institute of Mental Health um, and he works on a project there where he comes in as, as uh, um, to, to analyze things from a semiotic perspective essentially from a purse in perspective and that really i think that really pushes him a lot on And then of course um can you can speak to this best i don't know why i'm even talking about it because then you and he spend a lot of time wrangling about different ideas of purse i
1: i would like to make a a suggestion about the dyadic triadic thing which is very important to uh, walker let's take an example Suppose we have a, uh, a young child and a, a parent, and they're in Kansas on a farm uh, right next to Dorothy's farm, and they see uh, in, in the somewhat distance, although it's approaching, a very dark cloud. Now, child looks at the cloud. The child perceives a dark cloud. That is dietic. That's just perception. That's just light light wave light rays striking the uh, retina, etc. A series of causes. Uh, the parent, however, sees the same perceptions, but has a third element the thing that Peirce called the interpretant. Peirce thought that uh, understanding or communication and similar things were made up of three components combined in one relation, not a chain of dyadic relations where A causes B, B causes C, C causes D, so you've got A causes D. You have gotten beyond dyadic relations just to chain them together. Uh, He thought that understanding or communication was uh, a non-reducible triadic relation between something that the agent or the person is focusing on, he called the object, some representation of the object, some representing factor, But without that third element, the interpretive factor, you don't have communication or understanding or culture or symbol. So while the kid sees the dark cloud and sees that it's moving in more or less this direction, without the interpretant that the parent has, uh, the kid would not go to the cellar. The parent looks at that and says, because of the interpretational factor, that this darkness and this moving, that's the representational factor. What's the object? We're going to get hit by a storm. What's the interpretant? When you see this kind of stuff and it's moving your way, that means that it's a storm. So you see, meaning is introduced when you introduce the interpretant. Well, that's scientific, you see. That's the missing scientific element that you all were talking about earlier that isn't found in scientism, but is itself a science, but a science that it looks at more things than just A causes B. Now, A causes B is fine, and there there are sciences for that. But what Percy was worried about and what he wanted to solve for himself and solve for other people Uh, he wanted everyone to realize you don't have the full humanity when you have just those causes and effects. These interpretational things are crucial parts of the events that we communicate about, the events that mean something to us. And uh, so what does he do? How do you experiment with this? radical anthropology one way that he mastered really as his career developed as a novelist he wrote novels which are experiments in radical anthropology he did science with his novels now i'd like our literary people to tell me if i'm right or wrong about that well
3: um you're definitely right and and I think again that's that's where um people can even people that love Walker Percy's novels can can somehow not get it when they fail to see that when they perceive what he's written as as being sort of intellectual entertainment um then then they they sort of missed it you know they're a little bit like like Will Barrett at the end of the last gentleman when when he's he's there for for every moment of grace that appears and and he totally misses it and they're kind of like that you know if they don't see how he's sciencing in these novels so yeah i, I agree completely
0: so what is it what does it mean that he's sciencing in his novels because i i love percy i love his novels but i find them kind of prickly and i wonder if i saw them as as scientific experiments i might um i might have a a better way into them
3: Wait, what do you mean by prickly? Sorry, I know you're asking the questions, but I'm curious. No,
0: that's fine. Um, You know, I once read an interview with Frederick Buechner where he said that uh, all of Walker Percy's characters talk the way he imagines Walker Percy to talk. And I think there's there's some truth to that criticism of the novels, that they they feel, I mean, maybe what I'm saying is they feel like scientific experiments more than novels, um, as, as as I conceive of novels. Um, they 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 can feel a little dry. Uh, my favorite uh-huh. of them is uh, is Love in the Ruins, and I think Love in the Ruins gets past a lot of that by being really uproariously funny. But um, I I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm just talking.
3: No, I agree. Um, you know what I think? What happened um, is that. How he saw himself and what he wanted to be was a philosopher. Mhm. Um. But how does one do philosophy and, and um, send send your daughters to college and such? If you're he not going to be a philosophy professor. Right. And and he could only get so far in with the philosophy folks because he hadn't come in the right way. Right. He hadn't he hadn't come in through. Through their approved upon, you know, journey. Um, he was a medical doctor who wasn't practicing medicine, so, so he kind of there were there was sort of a glass ceiling to him, even though he got published in some some pretty well respected journals of philosophy. Um, in the 50s, he was only going to go so far. He wasn't, and I don't know that he wanted to be a professor. He wanted to write, and so I think what he decided. Um, when he was able to, to make it work in moviegoer, to take a piece of his, his way of thinking, his philosophy, and to lay it out there as a story about this man who was, um, you know, feeling dislocated and alienated and and um, struggling with, with the complete dyadic presentation of humanity, both not only through science, but but consumerism and that sort of thing. You know, we see banks struggle with all of those things. Um, and and he was able to to write it, and, and he kind of used some Kierkegaard, and that, that that's where the Kierkegaard thing really latched on for people. But he said, this works. I put some of my philosophy out there, and doggone it, it was sort of like adding flavored syrup to the medicine. <laughs> they took the medicine. So... I can be, I can, I can get my ideas out there, but I gotta, I gotta put them in some flavored syrup. And, and so that was one thing, I think, where he kind of turned more toward the novels because they were going to be a way for him to, to continue to care for his family and to earn money and to do those things. He had something of an inheritance enough that when he was a young married, man he could you know he could sustain himself and his wife and and young children but but kids cost more money as time goes on, and I think he had some real concerns for a while um, how was he going to really would he be able to turn what he was doing into something that could could really strongly provide for a family and so he he had to figure out a way to make it work, but then the novels also let him do the thing that I think he best liked about Kierkegaard, because if you read Kierkegaard, a lot of times um, when you're reading Kierkegaard, he's not just dry philosophy in the sense of um, like trying to read Immanuel Kant, right? Or Hegel, <laughs> Or whoever. Um, where you're just kind of slogging through these these really dry ideas. Kierkegaard liked to put someone in a situation in a sense and and meditate on that in some way. And and I think that worked for Percy too in the novels. It was a way to do that and then and then he could show this situation and he could show um, introduce elements into it and show things how how things could act and react within a, a human being on a certain level and how cause effect didn't explain the response so it wasn't merely a stimulus response response it was a response on a different level a more complex and complicated and triadic level and so he could look at that and he could also um, wrestle with lots of ideas um, which he does
2: and and to add on to what you're saying Rhonda I think I think what you're saying is he's a philosophical novelist. And mm-hmm. I right? that's what you're saying, Michael. And maybe gets a bit didactic at times, which always kind of ruins art. But his novels if you are asking the same questions he is, if you are in any way existentialist, then they uh you are a fan. He's fantastic. And and you I found people either love him or hate him. If you don't ask those questions, you have n- you don't even understand his novels. If you do ask those questions, he's asking the same questions and providing those answers. Um, and you can see his philosophical progression through the novels, through the six novels. Uh, and so he's very existentialist. I mean, that's, you know up front in Binks and the moviegoer and his his first novels. But then as he gets more into semiotic, his last three novels um, are really con- conveying this underlying semiotic message. Um, and uh, so although they all kind of have this same existential solution, which is uh, uh, relationship, which is community, that, that our existential questions are solved through community and connection and relationship.
3: But so much of, of what ails us in and, and, um, both the spiritual and psychological sense, um, instead of you know, throwing medication necessarily at it. He's also suggesting that you um, that there are other ways to treat those things that that plague us because because every character he has is a character that is um, at least as as ill as your average American. Mm-hmm. Sometimes and much per- worse. And perhaps worse, but. But you know, um, I think he he talked a lot about being like a canary mm-hmm. down in a, down in a mine, right? Yeah, and, and that he, notes
0: he for a novel about the end of the world. That's his that's his definition of the novelist,
3: right? And and we look at the rise in mental illness, um, depression, anxiety, all of those things that he was writing about in the 60s and 70s into the very early. Well, sixties and seventies mostly. Um, you look at that and then you look at where we are now and you know that he was onto it.
2: Mm-hmm. He was already sick. Oh yes, oh, yeah. Oh. Read Love in the Ruins. He's predicting our our society today. Oh yeah. people
0: talked about oh. the handmaid's tale as being like a an accidental <laughs> prediction of of the last five years or so, but to me, love in the ruins is like, that's what we're living in. The center did not hold. However, the GDP continued to drive, to rise.
3: (laughs) Yes. Yes.
0: Um, To to, to return to the science thing though, when he's, when he's writing, I, so, so one way of doing this would be to, to do what Sartre does. And so Sartre's, uh, Sartre's plays and his novels are for the most part, um, maybe no exit is a, is an exception, but for the most part, Sartre's uh, fiction and and drama is just a kind of object lesson from his philosophy, and it can be kind of frustrating for that very reason. That when when you say that his novels are a kind of scientific experiment, that's not what I hear. Though I hear that he is not aware of what the result is going to be when he starts doing it, and the novel is the kind of embodiment of the of the process itself rather than. Uh, some sort of didactic object lesson. Uh, but,
3: do, do you think that's accurate?
0: Or is he more like Sartre? Science?
3: Isn't that doing science? Mm-hmm. He says, let me put, usually a man, almost always a man, let me put a man in a situation. And now what becomes of?" and Right, if we answer, I don't think that necessarily when he started at the beginning, although he thought he might, just as a scientist does when he says, "Well, I think if I do this and I do this, that this might be the result." I have a theory. I have a hypothesis. Let me let me see what happens. Um so we put someone in a situation and then he sees what happens. He adds things to the mix and he and he sees what happens. Will we will we figure out how to exist or will we not? Will we be able to form relationships or will we not? Will we choose choose um something life affirming or will we choose something death dealing? What choices will be made?
1: The experiment is not done by Percy uh, in the novels. Uh, Percy is the experiment designer. The reader is the experiment. Hmm. The reader uh, performs the experiment within the reader's worldview, and what Percy is doing is suggesting that the reader's worldview has got a big hole in it and he builds it up slowly. He, he provides data to the reader when the reader is in a kind of watching the movie inside their head mode. Uh, as you read a novel, you you know, you're going through this experience of uh, kind of watching a dream unfold or, or something like that. Well, Percy is not, remember, Percy's not dyadic. He's not causing you to have an experience he's setting up an experience in which you have to interpret what you have been like and what this thing that's going on inside of your head as you read is telling you and the two are not going to line up very well and you have to resolve that contradiction just as Percy says in the beginning of of, uh, *Simple in Existence this is the story of the struggle between two contradictory worldviews within one person. That's the experiment he sets up when he gives you a novel, and you have to read it, and you have to perform the experiment. And if it works out for an improvement for you and a deeper understanding for you and for your approach to life and other people, etc., then you feel this really strange feeling that Percy has done something for you other I've talked to a number of people who who say uh, I don't know what he did but something happened there that that, that had to fasten my seatbelt cuz something went on inside me. Mm-hmm. Reader who's the experimenter? Percy just sets it up for you.
2: And I also think that he was pr- far more intentional than even he would have admitted. Uh, and I'm talking about the progression of his philosophy from, in the, in the novel, from existentialist to more semiotic and pragmatic and to finally in his last novel where he actually quotes Charles Sanders Peirce in the novel, uh, informally quotes. Um, and, and so as he's growing philosophically, he reaches out to Ken Kettner, he reaches out to Dr. Kettner, Um, because he knows he's a purse expert, and asks him about purse. And they have this years-long relationship uh, sending letters uh, that's chronicled in A Thief of Purse. And this is Percy trying to work out his philosophy. And at the same time, he's working out his philosophy with Kettner and studying purse he's working them out in the novels and so you see his last three novels have purses uh, purses semiotic um, it in them so purse purse to you know summarize dyads or cause effect uh, triads are that idea of relationship that uh, we connect to others not through cause and effect ways, and to the world, the world connects not through cause and effect ways, um, but through symbol, through relationship, and then the tetrads, and then they become prominent in his last three novels. That idea, I this is not him kind of flying by night, just picking up a character and going at the flow. He has a plan.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Lancelot focuses on triads and the second coming focuses on tetrads and Thanatos syndrome focuses on dyads, uh with a theme that goes along with them that corresponds to Peirce's philosophy. And and he sort of, you know, this book Symbol in Existence, his first book. You know, lays the foundation for that. Um, he's tough.
1: Yeah, the uh, interesting yeah. thing with Thanatos in terms of this dietic business is that the the bad doctors in the movie, or you know, well, not the movie, the, in the novel, um, are dosing a whole population and causing, it's a cause event. Cause, cause effect. Relations revert to mere Cause and effect behavior.
2: Hmm. Uh, so they're like animals. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: wife doesn't have enjoyable sexual relationship with the uh, uh, Tom, the hero, or the antihero. They just have a cause and effect sex. You know, like a a rat. It,
2: it and, and people's neuroses. Are cured through, uh, you know, drugs, antidepressants, and things like that, rather than say the triadic idea of community and relationship and meaning and this type of thing. And allow
3: uh, yourself to be a mess because sometimes you got to be a mess to figure out um, what you need to figure out about existence. But speaking of, of of funny funny moments in Percy to me, the funniest moment in percy um and and he's got a lot of them I think his his humor doesn't always get talked about or or noticed but the uh, funniest moment for me is is how um dr Van Dorn ends up in Thanatos syndrome um where he's he's in the cage with with the female gorilla and and but he's happy you know happy as a clam in there, just um experiencing a dyadic life in the end and and it was a it was just a nice revenge moment that that Percy gets on that sort of dyadic science
1: the uh, triumphant scene in Thanatos is when the the old sheriff uh, the good old boy sheriff is brought in by Tom and they're there in this uh, pedophile central place where Van Dorn and all his uh, friends are uh, dosing these kids so that they will just have sex like animals or, or robots uh, with anybody or anything. Uh, that's just a condition of no meaning. Well, here's uh, the sheriff, who's a triadic creature, who's able to understand things. But uh, how does how does uh, Tom and his friend get the sheriff to understand that? something is happening here that's dyadic cause and effect with these kids and the people who are torturing them how does how do they get the sheriff to realize that this isn't triadic see the sheriff thinks this is is ordinarily triadic stuff going on uh doesn't realize that these kids are just stimulus and response creatures like Pavlov's dog and they've been put in that situation by bad science, by scientism. And how does the sheriff come to realize uh, that his assumption that everything's okay, there's no bad science going on, uh, that's almost the culmination of, of Percy's uh, uh, philosophic and, and novelistic career, it seems to me. in that one scene.
2: So I I think, you know, Percy has actually said, and there's a quote in one of the interviews where um, he said, well, you shouldn't have to understand uh, philosophy to read and understand my novels. Well, you do. You do have to understand. To truly get the full effect, especially the last three novels, you need to read Symbol in Existence you need to at least understand diads, triads, and tetrads.
0: I, I agree that I, you know, I had read his semiotics material that had been published in those other two volumes. And I, you know, I, I understood a good deal about his kind of existentialist background in the fiction, but I saw them as two different things. Simple in existence really brings those two sides together. I, I think, I think he becomes much more comprehensible as a novelist. With the publication of this book,
3: yeah, I would. Um, that was that was the driving force. Um, our realization when we looked at the manuscript that that's that it was such a necessary piece um, to Percy's body of work, and that the fact that it had never been published was was really something that that needed to be rectified somehow. Um, and we spent what was it four years five years on this four years i think yeah so um and it was worth you know it was worth the whole project was worth it really for me right in this moment when you said that (laughs) okay that's what what our belief was and that's that's why we um dedicated that time to it because because we believe that it it was a a sort of um Scott should be here because he, he talked, um, for he, he, we had like three or four meetings in a row where Scott kept talking about the philosopher's stone. It's like the philosopher's stone. Um, he kept saying, and, and it really is, it's, it's a key to much of Percy. Um, and so having symbol in existence is, is really crucial.
0: Well, I, uh, Normally here I say that I've been steering the conversation so far but I think this is this has been spread around pretty uh, pretty well uh but here on Christian Humanist Profiles in the spirit of hospitality we like to give our guests the final word whatever we talked about here today that you'd like our listeners to know about Percy or about symbol in existence or about uh any anything else that we've been discussing
3: Um I think the one thing that that to a degree um Percy is always hesitant about in some ways, and we see this um, in *Moviegoer*, where 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 Binks, you know, uses the phrase, "Well, it's impossible to say," um, to talk about like matters of faith and that sort of thing. Is that is that Percy's Percy's life ambition? I believe. and and I do not speak for my colleagues, they can agree or disagree with me in a moment, but I believe his life's ambition was to, um, to in a sense, um, create a theodicy. In other words, um, to use science to prove God, and to even perhaps um, in a certain way, um, kind of a Miltonian way, almost justify the ways of God to man. In other words, to to show that among all creatures, human beings are unique. Um, they are unique as being created by God, um, that they are ensouled creatures, um, that, that we have a way of seeing the world um, that is because of God and his faith, um, I hear so many um, scholars actually kind of try to downplay um, Percy's faith and I I think it's not popular in a lot of ways right now um, for people to be overly devout Um, but I believe he was Um, but it didn't make him it didn't make him um, blind to things and it didn't make him it didn't make him What's the word I'm looking for? It didn't it didn't make him just um, 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 a pure dogmatist, I guess. Um, he thought there was there was a way to locate um, the soul. If you could find where in the mind, for example, in the brain, the interpretant was you would have found the seat of the soul. And that's what he was after, or at least that's what, how, how I read his quest is to be able to actually find the location of the human soul and to prove that we do have souls and that, that therefore there is a God. And we haven't even touched on his um, Neo-Thomism or Jacques Maritain or the impact all of that has, which is um, addressed really directly in two chapters and symbol in existence more directly than anywhere else. And those are chapters that have not been published anywhere else. Um, so I guess that's my final thought.
2: I agree, Rhonda. I think he he was an apologist for the faith and his a uh, particular brand of faith in particular, but faith in general, and meaning mm. Catholicism in particular. Um, but in in a world that, at least especially during the time he was growing up, became increasing, mat- increasingly materialistic, positivistic, um, cause effect, uh, understanding, behaviorist understandings of human beings, and he's trying to say, no, there's something more than that, and and you can re read him. You know, as a his message from a Christian standpoint as is, is valuable. But you can also read him just as a human, a humanist, um, talking about the fact that human beings are more than just dyadic, just cause effect behaviors creatures. There's something more going on there. And that's what Percy wanted to talk about. And he also, one of the things that uh, when he, he, uh, you know, as a a medical doctor who considered going to psychiatry, he talks a lot about the psychological ills of human beings. And one of his main observations is sometimes these ills have less to do with the individual and more to do with the state of society and that the uh, well The, quote, you know, healthy individual will not be well-adjusted in a sick society. And he was really making comments about society today or at his time that I think are relevant to society today.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Well, uh, something I heard from a, a close friend of Walker, uh, someone who's been with him a lot that's uh, relevant to our discussion today. This person said that uh, Walker felt very grieved that he couldn't publish Symbol in existence. It was turned down by some publishers that had been publishing that kind of stuff. Uh, for what reasons, I don't know. So we have strong evidence that he uh, had a pretty high regard for that particular work. Maybe not as a work of literary greatness, but as a kind of confession and struggle toward better understanding of the way things are, really are, not just according to some worldview or some dogma. Uh, In the correspondence I was honored to have with him, we would often reach the point where either one of us would say something like this, what we don't need is less science. We need science of the right kind, and we need more of that right kind. Now, the question, it seems to me, is an open question, whether if we get rid of the bad kind of science, uh, almost a conspiracy theory kind of science, Uh, where you're guided only by materialism and uh, behaviorism. Virtually everything becomes a robot, Uh, and the only goods are material goods. If we drop that kind of science and pick up the better kind of science, then we can, in effect, treat in this better scientific way all aspects of human life, including theology. Uh, Walker wanted to do what he called apologetics. In our correspondence, he more than once said he was going to write an apologetics book. Now, what that would have been, I don't know, but perhaps symbol in existence gives us a. a, a, a as good a set of clues as we might be able to obtain at this point. Uh, so, where would if we take this good science and we apply it to the issues that are bound in the uh, theological uh, uh, research, not just of one religion, but of any religion, of as re- of religion as a, a general human phenomenon, a f- feature of anthropology. Uh, Where would this good science take us? Now, that's a question that is worthy of study, it seems to me. How that turns out, will it turn out according to some institutional dogmatic uh, prescription? Or would it go beyond that institutional dogmatic prescription? Uh, Those are questions that Percy leaves for his readers to work out.
0: Hopefully this book will be picked up not only by Walker Percy enthusiasts, um, who I, I think are going to have to read it now, um, but but also by people who are interested in these questions. And, and maybe, you know, if he'd published this in the 50s like he wanted to, who knows where his career would have gone and his line of thought would have gone with it. Um, maybe, maybe somebody else can uh, can push in that direction now. Well, we've been talking to the editors of the newly published Walker Percy book, Symbol and Existence, A Study in Meaning. That is available now from Mercer University Press. You'll find a link to it and show notes for this episode at our website, christianhumanist.org. Christian Humanist Profiles is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. Thanks for listening.